Hello and welcome to The Word is Resistance. This is a podcast where we explore what our sacred texts have to teach us about living and surviving and even thriving in the context of white supremacist empire, tyranny, violence, and repression. We take this work on as white Christians who in so many ways benefit from that system and its violence, but who have come to see how white supremacy and all of its mechanisms of connected oppression in our economic system is a hideous deal for all of us and for all of creation. My name is Reverend Margaret Ernst, and I'm recording today from the house of a friend's family, which is on Nantigo or Nantuktok land in the state currently called Delaware. Did you know that you can text an address to 907-312-5085 and you can find out what indigenous land you're on? That is made possible by the good work of Native Land Digital. It's an indigenous-led, open-source platform where users can learn about indigenous territories, languages, and treaties that surround them. Or you can go to www.native-land.ca. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white folks who, like me, believe that following Jesus and following Christian faith in this time and in our society means listening to, learning from, and joining in the struggle for racial justice. The fact that you're listening today, that your faith has brought you here, and that you're thinking there might be an Easter word for me here, that you're seeking nourishment and encouragement in your work to resist racism, brings me deep hope. We're so glad that you're here. The music that you'll hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's called, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies. It's a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who've come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are so grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. If you've been listening to the podcast in Lent, you know we have just finished a series called Signposts in the Wilderness. Even though Lent is over, I recommend going back to listen, especially to our conversations with each other. Conversation with each other throughout Lent have pointed us closer and grown us closer in towards each other and towards the spirit of this work that is ever-growing, not just through our individual insights, but by nature, in community, and in relationship. The logic of white supremacy tells us we must do everything alone. The logic of God says we do it together. As listeners, you are a part of our community. And we would love to hear what you think. We are really moved when we get to hear from people that these commentaries help in your faith and in your work against racism. We especially welcome feedback from and accountability to listeners of color and from people who are not Christian. You can leave us a comment at our SoundCloud or Facebook pages.
spent much of my adult life trying to make sense of the mystery of why I count myself as a person of faith. You see, I was not raised very religious. I attended church, I sang in choirs, and going to church was something my family did to remain socially connected in the town I was raised in. We didn't really talk about what it meant to us or what it would change about our lives. I always looked forward to coming home after the service and taking my fancy clothes off and my itchy tights and dresses. As I grew older, things were changing in my family life. An outwardly picture-perfect image had fallen apart. What I believed to be true about the world and what was reliable in it had fallen apart. In those days, I would sit in church with my hymnal in my lap, clinging to its pages and reading lyrics and humming songs, trying to reach for something I didn't even know I was looking for. Maybe I was looking for something bigger and wider and deeper and more reliable than the parts of my world that had ended with no reason. So much of what I had thought was true was proven not to be. I, would, I had thought we had always would have enough money. I thought authorities were reliable. I was seeking some measure of certainty beyond the uncertainty that felt like a bottomless void. For many years, I sought answers with my mind. I would get into endless conversations with friends and my own inner self about the meaning of life. I debated quantum physics, and on some days, this endless curiosity felt like joy. On other days, it felt like desperation. If I couldn't find the right answer to how the world worked, if I couldn't make it all make sense, how would I know how to survive, how to live right, what to do next, how to avoid being hurt again? I wanted to have a map for the world with no holes in it so that I could always be prepared for the worst, so I would never again be surprised by pain or loss or hurt from those who love me. I have learned to love my younger self and the twists and turns of her brain, her endless curiosity. I see how she, she thought, sought safety through her mind, how staying in her head helped her protect her from the feelings of anger and grief that were too big to feel, feelings she didn't know it was okay to feel or that there wasn't safe space to feel. I will be honest with you that it's the same self-protective twists and turns of my brain that I tried to make sense this year of the story in Mark. I researched and I have thought and I have looked down every alleyway of reason to make it make sense. I have wanted a map to this story with no holes in it. I have wanted the kind of faith that can explain things in and out so that's what, what, what's left is only clarity. What's left is only pure joy. What's left is only ease. And what's left is only consolation. I have shouted into the realm, help me God, help me to make it make sense. I don't want any holes in this story because if there are holes, I may not be safe. And I may not have anything to protect me when I'm hurt next. I have shouted to God, help me to understand what this story is supposed to mean when three women find an empty tomb. When they do their diligence to provide for the body of Jesus, just like they have throughout his time teaching and preaching and doing healing work and justice work. 
What does it mean that these three women go again? The, the ones who have not looked away, they go to the body of Jesus to keep doing the work, and his body is not there. And the angels tell them to not be afraid. What I am left with every time is the honesty of their fear. Mark 16, 1-8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked back, they saw that the stone which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be afraid. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out, and they fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Listen to that part again. They said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. They said nothing, for they were afraid. The ending of Mark, its original ending, which ends right here at verse 8, is so honest that I resent it. It means I have to admit I'm afraid too. It means I have to admit I'm afraid instead of thinking my way towards protection and safety. It means I have to sit with my amazement at God instead of understand it. And it means I have to ask myself what the women were afraid of too. Were they afraid of the power of the resurrection itself? Or were they afraid of the consequences if they told of what they saw? Because if it's true, if it's true that Rome was not successful at executing Jesus, what else might be true too? If it's true that the empire's mechanisms of death are not what actually has total control over life, what would that require of them? And what does it require of me? What does it require of you? What if I lived as if Jesus were alive? 
Would I be quiet about it? I'm sure afraid about it too. Because that would mean that white supremacy is actually not inevitable. And that my cynicism that stops me from acting or my fears or my own self-doubts don't have the final word. What if it means that systems of extraction and violence towards the earth and each other, including when it's done in the name of Jesus, are not the only way? What would that require of me? It would require me to face forward into my fear without any map, without instructions, without easy answers, without the protection over my heart that shows up as doubt of myself and judgment towards others. What if I lived as if God has rolled away the stone? What cynicism and despair would I need to put down so I could enter into the river of life, the call of creation, the kingdom of God that is now and yet always is still coming? What if it's really true that when we point towards each other and towards justice and towards believing and remembering our own dignity and our, the inseparable, inseparable dignity of others, what if that means that God is already rolling away the stone when we point ourselves in that direction? What if I remembered every time that in spite of my efforts to find a way forward with my logical self, God got me up in some other kind of way? What if I were to tell you every time God got me through? What if I remembered every time I was raised up and were to ask you every time you were raised up when all signs pointed towards death and when the logic was of inevitable downward spiral towards destruction? Well, that's some scary talk. Because I don't get it. You might not believe me. I might not believe you. And because then... I'd have to live differently. I'd have to put down the defense mechanisms that keep me from believing that something different is possible. And so I'd rather explain to you every metaphor for Jesus's resurrection that doesn't rely on the utter wildness of this story. I might tell you how it was a ruse or a literary motif or even a trauma reaction. Instead, I want to talk to you about everyday faith, not the shiny kind, not the mountaintop moment, not the first and biggest time and clearest time that you felt that God was real, but about every time a stone has been rolled away in your life that you thought would never move. And I want to sit with you in the fear and amazement of what it might mean that that is what God is about and what God is trying to do every day. It might mean that God is rolling away the stones so that seemingly untrenchable power structures of our economy and culture can actually change towards right relationship if we put down our fears of what the consequences might be to us when we commit to the terrifying processes of change in the unknown. It means being willing to change limiting beliefs about others and about ourselves. For me, that means not letting my search for the most right way and struggles for justice stop me from moving forward. Holding both the vigilance and the amazement, the honesty about the terror I feel, and also the joy and possibility of something different is helping me to know Easter. 
If I don't listen to the stories of when the stone was rolled back and let those change me, I will never notice the resurrection right before me. God is make every God is making everything new, and there are holes in the map of our current destructive systems and their alternatives to supremacy, exploitation, and hate. Those alternatives require us to be real about what our fear is really about. For generations and generations, white people have been taught to fear, resent, romanticize, or invisibilize black people, indigenous people, and people of color. Or we've been taught that if we resist or speak up, that we too will be disciplined or criminalized or told that we don't belong. Whether it's fear of speaking up or fear of consequences or fear of being wrong or fear of failure, I remember in this story that it's God that has actually done the heaviest lift for us. God has rolled away the stone. God has co-conspired against the crucifixion powers of Rome. Our job is to live as if that's true, even when we are afraid. To speak it out loud so that we can tell the story about how another way is possible, about how the ways of empire are not the only ways, because we've lived it and we've seen it. It's possible to have a world where our friends who are Black do not fear dying at the hands of police. It's possible to invest in schools and not more prisons and policing. It's possible to have a world where scarcity is not the name of the game in economic structures, so that our own comforts don't rely on the exploitation of others, whether it's here or outside of our national borders. Everyday people like you and me can follow the path into that world by looking to the visionary organizing of black and brown grassroots and working class leadership, indigenous movements, and the leadership of the global south. The Empire's way is not the only way. God has rolled away the stone. today is to support our friends at Jews for Economic and Racial Justice, or JFREJ, in their work to transform our economy for one that works for all of us and to fight anti-Semitism. Check out their powerful campaigns at jfredge.org. Consider making a donation to Surge, showing up for racial justice, and to JFREJ. I also want you to encourage you to thank someone in your life who inspires you to be able to be part of the work of justice and who gives you encouragement that other ways of being are possible. Send a card or a package or a text or an email or a letter, a message of any kind, something that helps them to know that their work matters and that they matter. Then if you have time, write a short message to yourself. Acknowledge what your fears are. Acknowledge where you feel stuck. Acknowledge the despair, the hurt, the pain, the discomfort, Write what you need to hear right now. I want to shout out a specific thank you to organizers at Working Families Party and the Frontline and the Resistance Revival Chorus, who are creating joyful ways for musicians to spread the word about the Thrive Act, which is a jobs program that provides a path towards environmental justice with racial justice at the center. It's the congressional recess now, which means it's a perfect time to let your lawmaker know that you support the Thrive Agenda to all the years of work and organizers 
who have not just been resisting, but putting out solutions for us to become better ancestors together. I thank you. We owe you our love, our support, and our gratitude. God is rolling away the stone and wants to use us to be part of the resurrection from systems that run on death to systems that value collective care. God is rolling the stone away and wants us not just to show up at the tomb to see it, but to take part to bring our gifts and to be changed. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search the word is resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. Yeah.